friends, and welcome to this, another episode of the Underdog Football Show. My name is Josh Norris. Thank you for being here. Big two weeks coming up. We have some major announcements on the horizon. We actually made one the day of this recording. Launched the Underblog. If you go to underblog.underdogfantasy.com, you can find all of our written work. There's a industry mock draft up there, plus Hayden's rookie wide receiver, running back and quarterback and tight end rankings. Go and check it out. But as for this show, I got 10 people from the football bubble to give their 10 bold predictions of what will happen during and after the 2021 NFL draft. Well, you'll be hearing from Mike Wright of the Fantasy Footballers, Dane Brugler, my buddy, Fran Duffy, another friend, Danny Kelly, Brandon Thorne, an offensive line guru, Austin Gale of PFF, Brett Coleman, obviously a fantastic YouTube channel, Ben Solak of the Draft Network. So I don't want to waste any more time. As always, go and play on Underdog. Desktop's great. Mobile's great. Use promo code Josh Norris. Tell one friend about the show if you enjoy it. And let's kick this off with one of my first friends in the business, Eric Galco, who is still the founder of Optimum Scouting. You might know him most recently as basically being the director of player personnel for the XFL. And Eric's big call, which he made on Sunday morning, by the way, that's when we recorded this, is centered around what much of the draft conversation has been, the number three overall pick and the quarterbacks that have been attached to it. We've heard a lot about Mac Jones to the San Francisco 49ers as the number three overall pick. And I have really never believed, I think a lot of people who have watched all these quarterbacks kind of thought the same thing, but I'm going to go one step further. I don't think Mac Jones go any, goes anywhere in the top 10 picks overall. I think the Niners go a different direction. If the Falcons, they put it for, or if somebody moves up, I think neither of those options are Mac Jones. And with Detroit maybe not being a great fit, with Carolina making their move for Sam Darnold, they may move back as well for me. I don't see a team in the top 10 overall that's going to say Mac Jones is our player if and when the Niners move past. And that's going to put him in that Patriots-Bears range. But I think right now, no top 10 for Mac Jones is my big call. I have numerous follow-up questions, Eric. So yeah. bear with me, no pun intended, because ah, there you go. on April 16th, <laughs> I found a tweet. It wasn't you just directly. It was a reply to Mac Jones, and it was just an emoji of a bear. Do you think yeah. that is a landing spot for Mac Jones? I think that makes so much sense, and, and that may be one reason why my prediction is wrong if the Bears get too excited and go up to eight to go get him just in case. But the Bears signed Andy Dalton. That was their big move. I think their GM said he was the best quarterback available to us this offseason, right? It wasn't really resounding endorsement he's their long-term option and when you're a GM and a head coach that needs a spark for a team that wants to be successful this year having Mac Jones the guy who most believe I believe can probably come in in the NFL early on and and handle NFL offense and be capable I think he is a good fit to just kind of get you through and if Mac Jones is as good as a top three overall pick like people have talked about him he'll be a steal for the Bears but I think if you're the Bears if you can get up to maybe four or five six spots in the first round get a franchise quarterback in Mac Jones. Maybe that keeps uh, Matt Nagy and Ryan Pace around a bit longer. That, that would be my guess. And I know they have some interest in him as well. I'm not sure if it's first round, but I know they have some interest if he's close by. So there's also the layer of Mac Jones for a very long time, for weeks, and this is kind of the product of making that trade so early on, that he was the initial link to the 49ers. I mean, it was Adam Schefter, it was Ian Rappaport, it was Peter Schrager, it was Daniel Jeremiah, it was Chris Sims. That's a lot of, not to, you know, not lump you in there, Eric, but that's a lot of very knowledgeable and connected people yeah. 
saying Mac Jones to number three just wrong at the time, or has that changed since then? Do you think? You know, I I know very little bit about this, and I think Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch are really the only two people in that yeah. building that know the answer to this question. But I have had heard some things in regards to people close to those two, and I believe that they were very close to sure on who they're picking at number three overall, which I think was the right approach. Hey, we're pretty sure it's this guy, but let's use the process. Let's double check. There's no reason to rush. We've, we're already here. We know who the first two picks are. We have the first overall pick in the draft for all intents and purposes. I knew that was it. And I believe that player was Trey Lance. I believe Trey Lance was the player they targeted. I believe he was the guy that they felt fit their timeline. Um, if you look at all the pieces they've done as well, he fits not only their offense. Everyone jokes how everyone's a Kyle Shanahan scheme fit. Um, but I think also their timeline of having other established quarterbacks, Trey Lance is by far the most maybe developmental of all of them. So I think those pieces were theirs. But at the same time, I think Mac Jones fits a lot of what Kyle Shanahan likes. I think the fact that Shanahan maybe was intrigued at all for Mac Jones, despite being way less talented than Lance and Field was an endorsement. And I think Mac Jones, whether it was luck or whether it was a product of, of good marketing by his team, uh, was able to thrust up there. For Mac Jones, the benefit now is, if he goes to the Bears at 14, it's going to be a steal. And the Bears fans are going to be very excited, Patriots fans as well. So if he goes three, great spot for Mac Jones. If he goes later, it's still a huge win because that fan base thinks they got the third overall pick quality player. So. There's been so many stories out of the Shanahan-Lynch dynamic over the years. And I always go back to you know the Joe Williams draft pick when he was off yeah. the board and then Kyle talked – John Lynch into watching Joe Williams. And not only did he go back on the board, the team ultimately traded back up for him in, yeah. in the draft. So that what I'm trying to say is those are the only two people, as you mentioned, and most likely the owner that know the truth and like know what the end result is going to be. So anything else outside of it, it doesn't necessarily matter. We've heard it so many times. I mean, I can go back to the Jacksonville Jaguar selecting Blake Bortles, where it was just the head coach, and the GM and the owner who were in a separate room who knew that they were going to take Blake Bortles at that spot. So while these people can be connected, the scouts, the other directors can be connected throughout the entire process. They might not find out until that day, that hour, who the actual selection is. So all it, the buzz and the connections yeah. might be wrong. They truly might be wrong despite it being a month out. And that's surprisingly common for not just quarterbacks, but for a lot of picks. I think GMs and head coaches, I know multiple teams. I had a privilege of looking at a lot of teams' boards and knowing kind of strategies week of the weekend of the draft. And, you know, they were they were like, yeah, our scouts don't know. And, and they'll find out during the day of the draft. But we had no idea. We were walking the draft on Thursday. And last year, and I think this year for some teams as well, it was all on Zoom. So a lot of scouts are just sitting at home watching the draft like everybody else. And like, oh, I guess we just took this player. Um, but I think... I think the important piece about the the Shanahan Lynch dynamic and ownership is that I think things have changed. I think a lot of times when a head coach and we see this repeatedly, right? When a head coach becomes the de facto decision maker, yep. there seems to be some mistakes in trusting your eyes and trusting the scouting. And what I've learned of the Niners is that that's changed a lot since that, that Joe Williams pick and Joe Williams went from a fourth round pick to a player I consider for the XFL <laughs> two years later, it wasn't a great draft pick. We all know that, but I think that process has changed a little bit, but that being said, I think the Shanahan, Mike, and Kyle have had a, a pretty good track record of, of drafting and developing the right quarterbacks. And I think if, if Kyle's that confident, which is why I lean towards the upside player rather than the more safe Mac Jones, but I think if they have a quarterback in mind, I think Niners fans should be confident in saying, hey, you look what Kyle Shanahan's done with mediocre talents. Look what he did that rookie year with RG3. I think Kyle Shanahan has earned the right to say, hey, you know what? I mean, this quarterback's the third best quarterback in this draft, then 
you should trust me. I think I think we'll we'll be surprised who it is. No matter what, it'll be up to draft day, but I think they'll be happy with it. And them firmly saying that Jimmy Garoppolo is going to be on the roster this season. Oh no, no, I don't. I don't okay. think Garoppolo is on the team by September. I don't think no matter who it is, well, even Trey Lance being the developmental guy, I would say it's ten percent chance he's there by September first. You all know Mike Wright, the wildly popular fantasy footballers, the fantasy hitman. Well, he didn't take the idea, the notion that it might not be Justin Fields as the number three overall pick, as well as others might be taking it. I don't know what happened between the end of the season and the last couple months where all of a sudden a quarterback out of Ohio State who was like slotted to be the second best player in the draft, all of a sudden now we are questioning like, is he going three? Is he going to – I've seen mock drafts with fields available like at the back of the top ten picks. What is happening? What what insanity happened? Like, Mac Jones is fine. He's going to be I, – I think Mac Jones will be a competent NFL player. If if Trey Lance gets drafted in front of fields, uh-huh. my soul will leave my body. And, <laughs> and, and it'll, 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 I'll, be, I'll be gone. So if you like the fantasy footballers, hopefully you are rooting for that to not happen because I will just be an empty carcass, empty shell sitting on the couch because it will like everything will be completely broken. Anyway, so my, my big call, Fields is still going at number three to San okay. Francisco. They didn't move up for Mac Jones. They moved up for the player who should go number two. Uh, but the big call is if you are in a super flex dynasty in your rookie draft, Fields should be the 101. It should not be Trevor Lawrence. I get that everyone is, has christened him as the next Andrew Luck, the next can't-miss prospect. Uh, but I'm saying that he can miss because everyone can miss. So I want to shoot for the stars. I'm going for the ceiling. Now go back and watch the, the, the Ohio-Clemson game uh-huh. and tell me that Justin Fields is not on par with what Trevor Lawrence can bring you. I also do want to thank the San Francisco 49ers on some level sure, for giving us this content machine over the last month. Like this helps us, you know, if we knew, if we knew the top three picks, right. What other narrative would we have to talk through the multiple angles? But Mike, I think that there is some good process in talking through some of these angles, like the closer we get to it. And I, I kind of feel like it's a boy who cried wolf territory right now with, you know, the, the the buzz that links us to one or the other quarterbacks and then, you know, the markets that then shift based on that buzz. Right. But I truly do not believe that a team will trade up two future first round picks and a current third round pick for much of the same, for the same right. thing that has gotten them to this point, albeit hopefully not injured like Jimmy Garoppolo was. To me, this is a statement of Kyle Shanahan saying, hey, I want something else that I haven't have that when everything else is covered, when I can only take this team so far, he can take it to another ceiling, to another level. And I don't know right now if that is Justin Fields or Trey Lance. I think it, it, there's a possibility of both here, Mike. But I, I, I believe I've gotten to the point when I firmly do not believe it's Mac Jones. But even the small little thing in the back of my head is saying, you're really going to go against Ian Rappaport and Adam <laughs> Schefter and Daniel Jeremiah and Peter Schraker? And yeah, I am. Sitting here a week and a half away, I am going against those guys. Uh, I would, To follow up on that, I mean, just a couple years ago, the Cleveland Browns had the first pick and they were drafting Sam Darnold. Like, that was yeah. that was locked in. And then and we uh, the draft, twi- draft Twitter was like, you should be taking Baker Mayfield. 
And then they did, and we all were like, whoa, wait, hold on, hold on a minute. That was crazy. And also to to speak to how great San Francisco moving up has been just for fun, for, for football interest, for fantasy football interest. We've had uh, quite a few like high-powered NFL players on our show. We had Kyle Juszczyk on I'm our right. show. Like, yeah, well, you know, I mean, Patrick Mahomes, Alan Robinson, <laughs> no, whatever. You know, like great friends of the show, Austin Eckler and all those guys, whatever. But Kyle Juszczyk comes on our show, who is uh, like, we love Kyle. Like, he's, he is a fun guy. He's, a, he's an interesting player, he's, but he's a fullback, you know? And we're okay, let's bring Kyle on the show. And, and Kyle gives a soundbite about what's going to happen with San Francisco at the number three pick. We have never had a, a, a soundbite from our show picked up and circulated in media like this. I mean, there was an NFL.com right up, there was a. a uh, pro football talk. I mean, it was it was wild that, that we're like we're we're spreading news. That you're Kyle the newsbreakers now. Yeah, I guess. But it's like Kyle Uzcheck is the one who was talking about this. So it was yeah. that's how hyper focused people are uh, on this number three pick in what San Francisco San Francisco is going to do. But Justin Fields is my dude at the quarterback position. So let's leave that specific topic in the rearview mirror and now look at the quarterback position as a whole. And the Athletics' Dane Brugler, who produces one of the best draft guides out there in The Beast, outlined how this could be a historic quarterback class. Quarterbacks go one, two, three, four. Uh, that's never happened before. We have five quarterbacks in the top 10. That's never happened before. But I don't think it's going to stop there. Uh, I think there's a pretty strong chance we have at least seven quarterbacks, seven, drafted in the first two rounds, which has never happened before. Uh, we've seen six a few times. Uh, 2011, we had six quarterbacks go top 60. That was the the Cam Newton, Locker, Gabbert, uh, Dalton, Kaepernick, uh, Ponder year. 99 it happened. Uh, 83, we had the six quarterbacks in the first round. That was the Elway Marino year. But we've never seen seven quarterbacks go in the first two rounds. And I think we can feel confident about five in the first round, right? Mm-hmm. And then... I'd be pretty surprised if we saw six in the first round. I mean, you can't rule it out, but I'd be surprised. But then in the second round, Stanford's Davis Mills, Texas A&M's Kellen Mond, Florida's Kyle Trask, uh, those become realistic possibilities. And I think there's a good chance at least two of those, uh, which most likely Mills and Mond, in my opinion, uh, go in the top 60 picks. You look at the teams that could miss out on a quarterback in the first round, the Patriots, uh, the Bears, uh, the Saints, uh, you can't rule out, uh, you know, the Steelers, the Vikings, Washington. So I yeah. wouldn't be surprised to see any of those teams roll the dice in round two on, on one of these quarterbacks. And obviously all of these teams can trade up, but Washington right now sits at 51, the Steelers at 55, the Saints at 60. I'm going to put myself, Dane, in the listener's shoes right now, though, okay. because to be honest with you, We've heard somewhat similar things in the past. I can throw out the Garrett Gilberts. I can throw out the Tom Savages, the the Nathan Petermans, so on and so forth. So why is this class different? You mentioned how many will go at the top. And yes, we are locked into five, somewhere in that top 10, probably top 15 selections. So is it the hunger for quarterbacks that's different? Is it that now quarterback is basically a currency in the NFL that even failed first rounders then go for second rounders one or two years later? You know, these guys are immensely talented. All right? Talent's not an issue with these guys. It's more some just some question marks. And so each one's going to be viewed a little differently. The theory of just keep 
tossing darts at the quarterback board. And until you get it right, I mean, is a second round pick really going to set your franchise back that much? I mean, for some teams, they might say, yeah, for other teams, no, because it's the chance of getting the quarterback right is worth it. So, and that's why I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Carolina draft a quarterback at number eight overall, even after making that Sam Darnold trade, just because, you know, throw, at, you know, assets at uh, at the most important position on your roster until you get it right. So I think there will be some teams that genuinely take that to heart. Other teams might view these quarterbacks as uh, legitimate second round talents. A guy like Davis Mills, it really, as long as you can get past, uh, as long as the medical staff gives you two thumbs up on the knee and you can get past the only 11 starts, uh, he's easy to talk yourself into, in my opinion. 6'4", 217 pounds. Uh, he's a very loose passer. Uh, he moves well. He, I think he might be the best middle of the field passer in this draft. So there's just a lot going for him. Um, you know, Kellen Mond, I'm not the biggest fan of just because he's so inconsistent. But if you watch the right games, you watch that Florida tape, uh, all of a sudden you watch the, you know, Alabama you know, you're okay. I can get on board with Kellen Mond uh, because of the, just the natural traits. And you feel like, okay, maybe he's yet to play his best football. So uh, it's not, these guys aren't hard to talk yourselves into. And and so I think you're right. Your original point is right about, you know, the Davis Webbs and the Mason Rudolphs and the Garrett Grayson's and the guys we've, you know, Bryce Petty's guys. (laughs) Oh yeah. That late first round buzz watch for the saints. You know, we've heard it before. But I, I think this year, a uh, legitimate chance we see a couple of these guys go in the second round. Before I let you go, I'm going to put you on the spot. All those teams outside of the top 10. So you have Washington, you have the Bears, you have the Patriots, you have the Steelers, you have the Saints. Which of those teams are most likely to exit with a quarterback in the top two rounds in this draft? Um, I'll say the Patriots just because I think last year the way things went, uh, they, you know, they they just they don't want to go through that again. And I, you know, Cam, they brought Cam Newton back as you know to be their starter, but uh, you know, what's the long term play here? And it's people will point to, oh well, you know, Bill Belichick's he's only drafted a quarterback in the top two rounds once in his entire career. Uh, now it's Jimmy Garoppolo, and yeah, fair point. But when you have Tom Brady in the fold for uh, you know, 20 of those years or whatever it was. I mean, it's, it's kind of makes it a moot point uh, because obviously they're not going to draft a quarterback that early. So um, I don't think we know enough about how Bill Belichick looks at this quarterback situation and how aggressive he's willing to be. We just don't have a sample size. Um, and so I, I just, I, I would put my money on, uh, you know, Bill and then the Patriots maybe being a little aggressive. Three down, all focused on the quarterback position. So let's shift over to another spot. How about wide receiver? How about the ringers, Danny Kelly, who produces the most aesthetically pleasing, the most beautiful draft guide out there. Also does a podcast for the ringer. And we focus on a specific name that hopefully, you know, I love as well. Terrace Marshall from LSU is going to be the fourth receiver taken. So obviously Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, Jamar Chase kind of locked in as the top three, all potentially top 10, top 12, top 15 picks. We'll see. But I think... Among all the incredibly talented and uh, diversely like skill set mm-hmm. type players in this draft, I think Terrace Marshall has a very good chance to be the next guy to come off the board. He's got size, six foot two, two hundred five, length, seventy eight inch wingspan, speed four four, maybe even faster, um, and then explosion thirty nine inch vertical. He's a former five star guy, so he's got that pedigree. He took the same sort of scheme path at LSU as Justin Jefferson did. He started out on the outside, went into the slot. Uh, He was wildly productive, at least per game. 
in, you know, in both spots, 13 touchdowns in 2019, 10 touchdowns in 2020. I think he's a playmaker, catch radius, take the top off a of defense. Um, I think he's really, really talented. I've got, I've got Bateman list uh, ranked a little bit higher than him, but I think the NFL is going to like Marshall a lot. For some reason, I feel like the NFL might be lower than Bateman on the, than a lot of draft Twitter is. So we'll see, but that's, that's kind of my big call. I love this. And you and I have not compared notes in this draft process. Yeah. Uh, and hopefully though, you know that I love Terrace Marshall. So this one is right <laughs> up my alley. Um, yeah. And I, I want to expand on some of the points that you made because in a lot of ways they can separate themselves compared to a lot of his peers in this class. Mm-hmm. Right. Like yes. you mentioned the 2019 versus 2020 season. I think a lot of people view him as just a one-year wonder. When you go back to when it was <laughs> Joe Burrow, Justin Jefferson, and Jamar Chase in the field, he still caught 46 passes. He played 486 snaps on the outside, 671 yards, and 13 touchdowns. That's incredible. Yeah. And then you bring on what you just talked about in 2020 where, yeah, we have all that outside work, and now we also know he can operate inside to the tune of 731 yards and 10 touchdowns on a much worse team. But I always go back to this class, while we love the wide receiver group, it's small. It has a lot exactly. of thinner frames. And even if someone is 6'1", 6 foot, they might be 190, 185 pounds, mm-hmm. 170 pounds. <laughs> Terrace Marshall is one of the few that is 6'2", 205. And that on some level is going to differentiate itself compared yeah. to the rest of this group in this class. That's exactly how I'm looking at it. I think, and I also, this is probably not fair and it, it might not be real, but I feel like that he's going to get the Justin Jefferson bump a little bit just mm. because we saw what Jefferson did as a rookie. We saw um, they're almost similar in, in a lot of ways. I, I think that, that Jefferson was more polished and nuanced uh, in his, in his route running. Yep. Um, but I think they look, I mean, they like look similar on the field. Like they're both, smooth, explosive, um, big catch radius, win at the catch point type guys. And obviously coming from the same offense, there's just sort of like that, that you just associate the two that some team is just going to fall in love with the traits, the can pedigree, I, all that stuff. Can I throw out a name? And it's not one that I put out publicly. So maybe this is the wrong platform for it. If I was ever to do it, maybe my own show would be the right one. <laughs> um, but just the bullet points. And I'm not saying the type of player, what he's doing in the field, but the bullet points actually remind me of Chris Godwin coming mm. out of college yeah. because what Chris Godwin was great, who won the third round. And I remember Matt Harmon and I talking about him on this very show or one similar to it uh, before the draft. And, <laughs> but Chris Godwin was a fantastic athlete, very young, which Terrace Marshall is as well. That's the other and thing, then, yeah. and then fantastic in those contested catch situations. And Terrace Marshall, according to PFF, 25 catches on 41 contested targets in the past two years and he fits the size and he fits the slot experience and he fits the athleticism like again i think when you watch him he's not as aesthetically pleasing as a lot of the players that you mentioned obviously the top three probably rashad bateman and then obviously those smaller guys are you know nimble and animated in their movements and marshall is not at all like he's just all athlete right now i'm gonna run over the middle field try to catch this ball in, in tight quarters, and I'm going to bring it down because I'm just a better athlete than a lot of these guys. But there's so much to work with, and I wouldn't be shocked if we say in the NFL if his game can kind of mirror someone like Chris Godwin. Yeah, I like that a lot. I think 
I don't know. It just feels like he's not getting discussed as much as some of the other players. And I, and I think that's a mistake because I think he has a chance to be among these top guys. Now, and, and it feel, it felt like um, Jefferson, who I think, you know, again, I've talked about the similarities with him. I felt like Jefferson last year, people were definitely worried about the slot only yep. thing. And I think that's, that's fair, but also like, like with Jefferson, if you go back a year before that, he was pretty good on, on the outside for, for LSU in a completely different offense and a com- like a way worse offense. Um, Terrace Marshall was good both outside and inside. And he was, he was very good, sort of like the inverse. He was very good in a not good offense in a, in a, in a offense that lost Joe Burrow, lost Joe Brady and had to deal with that. He was on pace. Like if, if you extrapolate, I know this isn't, like do it necessarily true but if you extrapolate his stats i don't have it in front of me but he was going to score like 20 something touchdowns (laughs) in a a full season so like we would have been talking about that completely differently if it wasn't this covid shortened season he opted out um all that stuff you know obviously he might he, he may not have reached the heights of of you know what pace he was on right but his numbers were going to rival what jamar chase put up in 2019 in in some ways and so it feels like we're overlooking him a little bit Danny, let's take this one step further. I would not be shocked, and maybe I'm just buying into it right now. I would not be shocked if Terrace Marshall, a few years from now, is better than one of those top three receivers that's selected ahead of him. Like, I think that's in the realm yeah. of possibility here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I know yeah. this link has been made a lot, but 27 to the Ravens makes so much sense. Like, if you can improve from Willie Sneed to Terrace Marshall <laughs> right. over the middle of the field, right. like, I, I think a lot of people are, are trying to create more players for them outside the numbers and whether it's the offense or Lamar Jackson or a combination of all of it right now, that team is just not comfortable throwing outside the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so having a Mark Andrews, Terrace Marshall over the middle of the field with Marquise Brown over top, that's something I can get behind and wherever yeah. Sammy Watkins wants to play, whatever uh, that's kind of a quartet that intrigues me. Yeah. And you could you could make the argument that Marshall is everything that Miles Boykin was supposed to be. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I know. Obviously, we love the guy because just a rare athlete, rare size, and all that. But he just hasn't really panned out. This offense is is kind of tough to to gauge because yeah. Let's you know, make like excuses said, they, for him. Let's do it. Let's do they, it. They they have been like not very good passing outside the numbers, but. Uh, when you have that little competition yep. on the outside and you haven't really done anything, it's not a good sign. Um, but I, yeah, I like that fit for for Marshall. And let's throw out one more. Look, there might be something there where the Chiefs want more middle of field help if they were going to try to sign Juju Smith-Schuster. Mm. And maybe Terrace Marshall with Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill. Can a boy dream, Danny Kelly? <laughs> I would love that. I would love him in uh, Green Bay too. Just give, get him with a get him with an offense where he could be a solid number two, like at least receiver number two. And I think he could flourish. And now to running back, where we bring in PFF's Austin Gale, host of the Two for One Drafts podcast with friend of the show, Mike Renner. And he simply wants to give you the prospect at the position who they feel now is the running back one in this class. Javante Williams, the UNC running back, will be the most productive running back of any running back in this class. I think when you look at all the factors that go into player evaluation and specifically running back evaluation, he he stacks every single box outside of maybe the long speed. But I don't think that's even necessary anymore to be a successful, productive back in the NFL. Former valedictorian in high school, 4.6 GPA. He almost pursued a scholarship, an academic scholarship, but didn't even play football. He was recruited by Alabama to play the linebacker, but they they said he was too short. So he goes to UNC, plays running back, 
has all the success, obviously, in this breakout season at 20 years old. Still a very young player as well. I think you factor all these things in, breaking the PFF record for forced missed tackles per attempt, yards after contact per attempt. I had him on my podcast recently and talked specifically about that Miami game where I think he broke like 12 tackles. And he, he just has so much confidence. He's, it reminds me a little bit of um, talking to Alexander Madison a few years ago, a guy that oh, was yeah. bi- bilingual, all these different things. It's just this head on his shoulders. That you're like, man, this guy might be the smartest person in the room every time he walks in. And I care a lot about that stuff. I care a lot about the off-field and the character and the person you're bringing onto a football team. You factor that in with his age, his athletic ability, the force miss tackle ability. I mean, Mike has compared him to a bigger Alvin Kamara. I don't know if I can get more bold than that. I really do like what Javante Williams brings to the table. And as much as there's talk about Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, Kenny Gainwell, Khalil Herbert, Michael Carter. I really do think Javante Williams is going to be the best back. Speaking of Mike Renner, we had him on a show a couple weeks back about running backs, and we all concluded that Javante Williams is the number one back in this class, and it's exactly what you talked about of what translates. And the easiest thing to translate are force missed tackles. It's broken tackles, and he has that at an incredible rate in this class. Now, I guess my only question to play devil's advocate here, Austin, because of the presence of Michael Carter, who is also going to be drafted probably in the middle rounds, he doesn't have a ton of pass-catching experience. One, do you think based on what he was allowed to do, he can show more of that in the NFL? And two, do you think that that's something that's absolutely necessary and something that could hold him back in this group? I mean, it's definitely going to be something that holds him back, at least out of the gate. You know, it, you know, pass catching experience matters. Reps matters at that position. I think you're going to want to get him involved in the passing game. You saw Travis at the end of Clemson improve as a pass catcher over the course of his collegiate career. He said, you know, I was talking to Amari Rogers, slot receiver for Clemson. Yeah. He said, we used to make fun of Travis Etienne because he couldn't catch a thing. He'd work the jugs <laughs> machine every single night after practice trying to make better. And you see now Travis Etienne improves so much as a pass catcher. I'm not saying it'll be the same trajectory for Javante Williams, but I do think the biggest thing with pass catching is reps. And if you give him those opportunities, I do think Javante Williams could be that. I think it's necessary if you want him to be this bell cow in the NFL, if you want him to be a Christian McCaffrey or um, you know Alvin Kamara type from a touches perspective, he does need to get better there. But I don't think you know another lesson that I think we learned from the 2020 NFL draft. Mike and I talk about player evaluation and how we can continue to get better. One of the lessons I think we took close to heart now is if you, if you haven't seen it, doesn't mean he can't do it. And I think the first right. person to come up with that is Justin Herbert. Just because you haven't seen him, you know, put it all together, just because you haven't seen him, you know, take over in games, win in clutch situations, doesn't mean he can't do it. Justin Jefferson, just because you haven't seen him win on the outside, haven't seen him win against press, doesn't mean he necessarily can't do it. So you really have to evaluate the player in the situations he's in. And when you look at some of the other UNC players, you know, Deami Brown, Daz Newsom, Michael Carter, they talked a lot about the simplicity of that offense. You know, Deami Brown was only asked to do a handful of routes, a very vertical route tree there. And I think for Javante Williams as well, they weren't getting very complex with his usage. He wasn't getting worked into the slot and doing different things. I think when you get to the NFL, a valedictorian, 4.6 GPA, I don't think you'll have any problems <laughs> with, you know, taking on more roles and learning more things. We got to get that OC out of here. You know, I'm not trying to get people lose jobs, but he just makes our job even more difficult. And it's the same thing with DK Metcalf and, and AJ Brown coming out of college too. All right. Mm-hmm. Final question. It's a two-parter. One, do you think the NFL is going to agree with us? Do you think that the NFL could see Javante Williams as the number one back in this class? Could he go off the board there? Because I think he was either some range. It depends on what book you're using. Plus 400 to be the first running back off the board. And then second, can we play some matchmaker here? Like, could it even be the the Pittsburgh Steelers all the way up at, at 24? Someone else like the Miami Dolphins at number 36 in the second round. 
Yeah, I think it's tough. I don't think the NFL will ultimately pull the trigger on Javante Williams as the number one back. I think the Alabama stable, I think there's a lot of traditionalist thought with drafting running backs and experience and these sort of things. I also think Najee Harris is really good. Like it's you're yeah. splitting hairs in some ways with Najee Harris, Travis Etienne, and obviously Javante Williams. And those are the top three backs, the consensus top three backs right now. I think any of those guys could be the first off the board. If I was placing a bet on even odds, I would say it's Najee Harris of Alabama. I think he could go as high as 24 to Pittsburgh Steelers or 30 to the Buffalo Bills. But the Bills are my, my name. I think if Javante Williams doesn't get drafted at 30 by the Bills and say he does go to the back end of the second round, that's another opportunity for him. Because what they've shown is they value force missed tackles. You look at Devin Singletary coming in at FAU, had one of the most highest force missed tackle rates we've ever seen. Same with Zach Moss. You know, PFF loves Zach Moss coming out of Utah because what? He forced missed tackles. And not only, you know, to talk a little bit more about, you know, force missed tackles and how it translates, it's yeah. also, it's stable, but it's also one of those rare things that you want from the position because it's, it plays into yards created in a position where so much of your production is dependent on opponent box count, offensive line play, scheme, situation, these different things. What can you control? You can control yards created, yards after contact, and force missed tackles. And not, so you factor in the stability of it and then obviously the value of force and missed tackles, as we've seen with some of the more successful backs in the NFL. I really do think that the Bills are on to something, drafting guys like Singletary and Zach Moss, and maybe at 30 overall, they do take Javante Williams. So we've spent this entire episode so far on offense. In fact, I would say 80% of the draft coverage this year has been focused on the offensive side of the ball, well more than what's regular. So now it's Brett Coleman. Check out his YouTube channel. He also is part of the Bootleg Podcast. Offers his thoughts on how the defensive side of the ball will shape out in this draft. There are a few top 10 caliber defensive players in this draft. None of them will be taken in the top 10. We're going to have 10 straight offensive players, even to Dallas, based on who I think is going to be there at 10. And then we're not going to see a defensive player until 12, which is going to be J.C. Horn to the Eagles. I I, I love it. And, you know, I, I went back and I guess the extent of my Draft history research is just going to drafthistory.com and looking at the latest selection for defensive players since, you know, we can call it modern day NFL. And I believe it was 1999 with Champ Bailey. You can probably correct me if I'm wrong. And that was number seven, number seven, like not even having one in the top 10 and maybe even top 12. It is absolutely, it'd be historic, completely historic. It depends a lot on, is Sewell or Slater there at 10 for Dallas? If the answer is yes, I think it's a legitimate possibility. Hmm. We get all the way to 12 because the Giants, I, I think, would probably also take receiver as well. Legitimate possibility we get to 12 where we're looking at, at corner for the Eagles. But, well, I don't know. I don't know if you've heard this rumors about Zayvon Collins at 10. to Dallas. I have not heard these. Reveal them. <laughs> I guess they really, really, really love Zayvon Collins or they really, really, really hate Jalen Smith. I honestly can't tell yet, but that's that's been the scuttlebutt is Dallas loves either Zayvon Collins or Kyle Pitts, whoever's there at 10, which would blow my mind. But it is Jerry Jones, so who knows? So since you talked big picture of, of what could happen in a big storyline, because that would be a massive one exiting this draft. Is there one prospect that you love just – much more than others, or if you don't even know how others are thinking, just one that you've watched that in your head, you're like, okay, if I was running an NFL team, this guy would get a star on his nameplate in the drafter. I would probably say Jalen Phillips from Miami, which I know I'm not the only person to love Jalen Phillips, but it might be the only person that was considering Jalen Phillips at fourth overall to Atlanta. That's how much I love Jalen Phillips. 
I know the concussion thing is an issue for a lot of people, perfectly justifiable. But if there was no concussion issue with him, his actual just pure tape grade, I think, is equivalent to the Bosa brothers. It's equivalent to Bradley Chubb. It's equivalent to all these other top tier edge rushers, minus probably like Miles Garrett himself in the and Chase Young in the last several years. Like he is barely below those guys. And people forget he was the number one overall player in high school coming out. And he was seen as chase young's equal after their true freshman seasons when they were both freshmen, all American. Uh, He was a phenomenal prospect at UCLA and then had to take time away and then came back to Miami. But he's, he's legitimately that kind of guy. I think he's not just a top 10 talent, but a potential top five talent that won't go in the top five because of the concussion issues. I think his floor to me, is Minneapolis at 14. Any lower than that, I'd be stunned. You can make the argument that the best position or positions in this class are offensive tackle and offensive line in general. To continue Brett Coleman's point, now it's time for Ben Solak, Bleeding Green Nation, The Draft Network, The Solak Show, so many places. Solak produces great content. Takes it a step farther with one spot along the defensive line. It's not a very fair call. It's a, I'm not even sure to what degree I believe it, but I think it should be said. I don't think there's going to be a single like good defensive tackle from this draft. It's just not a good group. It just isn't. I think like, like the thing is, we'll be fine. Okay. Like there'll definitely be players who are good. I really like Tommy Tungy out of Ohio State. Right? I'm already hedging. I, I like Tommy Tungy out of Ohio State a lot. I think he's a Derek Naughty type. I think they need two gap for you. He's got great hands. Uh, but when you look at Christian Barmore out of Alabama and the, the, the amount of, Snaps he got, low number. And then the times that those snaps are really productive, even lower number. Uh, you look at Levon Wuzurike, who came out of Washington, and is this like Malik McDowell body type, and he's mm-hmm. a little bit long, he's a little bit undersized for the inside. And Davian Nixon at Iowa, he's this Juco guy. I guess the Iowa hat was for somebody. It's for Davian Nixon. Uh, he's, he's a Juco guy, and, and, and he's high ceiling. All of these guys have long developmental arcs, huh. and teams are increasingly impatient. I feel like, and and you even look at the arc of a guy like Quinn Williams, Barmore's successor, at, or I should say predecessor at Alabama, who was the number three overall pick and had flashes in year one. And even then there were the rumors that the Jets might move on from him, right? And then he comes out in year two and he's so much better. And okay, now we're good, we're strong. I think Barmore's got a longer arc. I think Davian Nixon's got a longer arc. And so I'm worried that some of these developmental players won't have enough patience and not enough reps to develop. And then your other guys, right, your Tommy Tungy guys and, and your Tyler Shelvins out of LSU who are these two-gapping guys. They're fine, but they're not the sexy, penetrating, six-sack, yeah. seven-sack guys that teams want. I'm worried it's going to be a really weak class when it's all said and done. This one cuts deep, Ben Solak, oh, yeah? because potentially my favorite prospect this entire draft, and you know what that means. That doesn't mean I have him, like, top 10. Right. That just means someone I'm in love with. It's Milton Williams out of Louisiana Tech. And I know he's only yeah. 284 pounds. Mm-hmm. So do you not view him either in that top tier? You don't view him as an interior disruptor. So I, I do. I think that, gone, like, I don't want to say we've gone down the Aaron Donald path a lot because that's an unfair comparison for literally everybody. Um, but There's not an Aaron Donald every year, Ben? Yeah, no. It hasn't been Aaron Donald since uh, <laughs> Aaron Donald. Uh, but the thing with Williams is to put a 285-pounder out there, you've got to have a particular defensive coordinator who's willing to do that, willing to take that risk, willing to work around that sort of a guy. And then when he's out there, he cannot feel like a liability against the run. And right now, when you watch Louisiana Tech film, in my opinion, Milton Williams can feel like a guy who 
on running downs, you're like, oh, I don't know how that's going to hold up. You know, like that BYU film had its moments where you're like, yes. And then also had those moments against a good interior where you're like, oh, buddy, like this has to be stronger. <laughs> so if you can promise me Milton Williams is the second round pick of Vic Fangio in Denver, I am there for you. Milton Williams, DT1. Um, but that's a, a particular body type that needs a particular role. And again, like needs patience. And that's what always worries me. So when players need patience, man, at, patience feels like something you've got in March and in April when you're excited about the film. And then all of a sudden, fast forward to November and you're a six and six team pushing for the playoffs. Patience doesn't really feel like something you want anymore. I don't know how, how deep we want to go here, ben, but that might speak to are all of these defensive tackle body types, archetypes switching over to offensive line? Are they switching over to more athletic positions and, mm-hmm. and not these, you know, run stuffing defensive tackles, or is it just this one year that is uncommon that there are so many more offensive talents, either at the skill position players or along the offensive line versus what we've typically seen. Cause we have seen years mm-hmm. where defensive tackle is the strength of the class. Yeah. I I've, I talked about this a lot in terms of offensive line versus edge. Cause if you remember like three or four years ago, that 2017 season, I think it was where like pressures were up inordinately. Mm-hmm. There was this conversation that was like the offensive line development in college is done. It's just RPOs. It's just quick game. They're, they're, we're never going to get a good tackle pro ready tackle ever again. And it's terrible. And then guys like Duke Manyweather and LaCharles Bentley started to do work outside of colleges, developing these offensive linemen. All of a sudden, we had the offensive line draft last year. This year, we're going to have like six go in the first round. Sewell and Slater are great. You know, like the offensive line plays picking up. So development happens in a lot of different ways. Right now, we're on an offensive line swing. And in general, we're always going to be on an offense swing. Seven on seven helps quarterbacks a lot, helps wide receivers a ton. Running back always has so many bodies, so many athletes, because high school teams are running the ball so much. So yes, there'll always be that benefit for offense. I do think in general, this is more so a little bit of a blip. Uh, you know, we got to remember over the last five years, how many corners have been like top five conversation players, top six, you know, like that position so important. So, yeah, I think that like we could break that record. But to me, this year is just uniquely a little weak on defense. And I think in general, we'll be OK. Curveball at you before I get you out of here. Mm-hmm. What are the Eagles going to do at 12? I think they are less of a candidate to go wide receiver and more of a candidate to go corner and even offensive line and edge than people realize uh the premium positions that howie roseman has invested in have always been in the trenches that has been this team's direction and you might even say oh well you know the eagles should be losing faith in roseman arguably but when they got this team good it was because of offensive line and defensive line that was that they had Wentz right and everything of course but it were those picks and that investment so quitty pay is a conversation jalen phillips if they clear him medically is a conversation uh if one of Rashawn Slater or Penny Sewell takes a bit of a tumble, especially with this recent top 10 conversation, those guys will be uh, in, in the conversation. And then uh, they're going to love J.C. Horn in the building. Uh, Jonathan Gannon, mm-hmm. the new D.C., comes from the Matt Everflus, Mike Zimmer. I want my corners to eat glass, punch people in the nose, be competitive, <laughs> be angry sort of approach. Uh, so they're going to love J.C. Horn. If he's there, he, uh, I think that that's, that's, that's something that they'll talk about. And Wide receivers got a ton of athletes. They've already spent a first and a second round pick in recent years. I don't think they want to spend another first round pick if they can avoid it. So wide receivers still on the board. Uh, the Alabama guys will still be in the conversation, but they're more. There's a larger variety of positions they could take that I think people are acknowledging at this time. I did mention how great the offensive line group is, so I really wanted to bring in. I'll call him an expert, an expert on offensive linemen. Brandon Thorne writes the Trent's Warfare newsletter. He grades offensive linemen for a bleacher report. He also does work for establish the run. And I wanted him to give me one of his favorite sleeper offensive linemen, and then ask him about a question that is being 
impressed with this offensive tackle group specifically? So I'm going to go with a guy who I think could make it into the end of day two. And he's Drew Dahlman, the center from Stanford. Uh, just on film, he, he reminds me of a guy that I actually got to watch a little bit uh, with the Chargers back in the day, Nick Hardwick. I think he's a center-only guy um, just because of his size. He's a little undersized. Pretty much a zone scheme guy. I mean, you don't want him in, you know, like Baltimore scheme or, you know, Tampa or anything like that. But I think in in the right situation, I think this guy could really thrive and play for a long time. I think he has really loose hips and a really good understanding of angles uh, in his own scheme on how to get guys blocked on, you know, the first and second level. Um, and I think, you know, his pad level and, you know, natural leverage, I think, are, are certainly there as well. He's just a smaller statured guy with average or below average length, and he's not the most powerful guy. But I think the the, the the trump card type of traits that he has in terms of processing, quickness, use of leverage, and just his understanding of, of the zone scheme, I think can be a great fit in a few different places. You know, San Francisco, um, the, the Rams. I can't let you out of here before asking a another big picture question about this entire offensive line class, because it's a group that is full of athletes. I think a very talented offensive tackle and interior quality group. And and that's not something we can say every single year, but Brian, I feel like a a major storyline either during draft week or as we approach it is going to be arm length. And this is something that I'm sure you hear all the time, probably frustrates you often when discussing offensive tackles, but even you know, the ones at the top in Panay Sewell, in Rashawn Slater. I could keep going on and on with round two, round three types. It's like 33 and a quarter inches or below. So how would you answer the question of, hey, does length have to be a quality, a critical factor when talking about offensive tackle specifically and if they'll succeed at the NFL level? So I think that there is a benchmark right now in the league that I would really feel better about guys hitting, and that's 33 inches. Mm -hmm. I just think that there's enough guys who have had high-level success at tackle with 33-inch arms and change. Brian Balaga, Lyle Collins, Jason Peters, um, Mitchell Schwartz. uh, There's there's a bunch of guys who have played tackle at a really high level uh, with 33 and change in charm. So that to me right away, I think is sort of a benchmark. If guys hit that, then it, it all comes down to how they use their hands because length, I think is, you know, kind of the cherry on top with, in terms of getting guys blocked a lot of the time, it's not really the, the foundation. I think that's how they use their hands. I think the hands really supersedes the length as long as they hit that benchmark at tackle. Um, and, and there's a couple guys in this class who actually don't hit that benchmark, uh, Liam Eikenberg and Brady Christensen in particular, that I think are going to be really interesting test cases to see if they get that opportunity at tackle and then how well they do. And we'll close with the guests with a big picture look at this draft and kind of the draft process as a whole. I mean, these last couple months for agency and draft season are all about team building. It's like the team building part of the NFL calendar. And it's something Fran Duffy, who works for the Eagles, produces content for the Eagles, incredible podcasts like The Eagle Eye in the Sky and Journey to the Draft. He and I constantly have these conversations offline, so we wanted to bring one of them online to you. 
And I think when I look at the, the way that this draft kind of sets up with all of the unknowns and such a unique draft process, uh, you know, going back to the last summer and the lack of exposures that teams have had with these players, I think that the Senior Bowl will have a record high in draft rate, potentially 100 uh, percent in terms of looking at the, the non-specialists, the non-kickers and long snappers, uh, which maybe we'll throw those in there just for good measure. But I think when you look at the amount of players that got face to face time with teams in person, uh, that's a, that is going to be so invaluable for those players and for these teams because you didn't get that with any of these other events throughout the going back again, going back to last summer to training camp, you didn't have any of that. So being able to get those live exposures, I think the senior bowl will have a a record high draft rate. And along Mm -hmm. the same lines, I also think we will see potentially a near record low in terms of non combine in non combine invitees drafted as well, because while the, the medical is not quite as thorough as it normally is when everybody goes to Indianapolis, there's at least some level of medical check uh, for all of those players that if you were not invited to Indy, you don't get that. You don't have those private visits where you'll be able to go to the, to the, uh, uh, to the private team doctors. Those don't exist. And so while agents may be able to supply teams with some of that information, it's not going to be as tight. It's not going to be as confirmed as the guys that did have that. And while you know, I think it was the numbers 150 of those players did get to go to Indianapolis for the the full medical exam. Right. Not, the, 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 to me, the players that were not invited on that combine list, even though nobody really outside of those 150 made the trip to Indy, I think that's going to be a record low this year. This draft press conference series has just started and you know me i'm a crazy person i go and watch all those um eric DaCosta did his the day of this recording mm. and i was actually shocked fran and he might be lying who knows with these i was shocked that he said they have a normal number of draftable grades compared to other years mm. they have around 200 players um we've heard teams you know be around 100 but 200 seems on the high end and for this draft class for all the unknowns that you mentioned for the opt-outs and you know, FBS players not having you yep. know multiple games. Uh, Two hundred seems like a lot, especially considering. And I, I want to reference uh, Defector Media's Kaylin Kaler. Yes, because she reported that by mid-April of 2019, over 1,900 players had signed with an NFL agent. In 2020 of April, it was over 1,800, and this year on April 7th, just 600. And 57. I'm sure that there's, you know, some economics behind that, some money sense around that and a reason for it, Fran. But that just stands out to me that obviously you're not going to have as many undrafted free agents signed on with agents that will then help them through the process of locating a team during whatever offseason activities that we have. And it's something, honestly, I talk about this on, on one of my two podcasts this week in that uh, the the depth of this draft, I think, will be bought into question. But when it comes to individual teams and how they treat it, I think it comes down to how liberal you are in terms of giving out those draft grades and uh, ultimately how much you trust your your process leading up to this. If you trust uh, your information gatherers, if you trust your evaluators, your eyes on the eyes in the sky to be able to evaluate these guys from afar – then you'll, that probably won't be impacted that much. If you don't, if there's going to be a lot of question in terms of that, uh, maybe you don't have as many draftable grades. And ultimately that might say uh, maybe we are, we're going to put more value, more stock into either trading our picks for current players or for trading into next year. Where Because that's the thing. 
the rule from the NCAA that was given out last fall, and that's why I think had a huge impact on that that piece that you mentioned. Uh, the fact that so many guys went back to school for a free year. They the, basically yeah. the NCAA said it's a free year of eligibility in 2020. Not only does that impact this draft class, but next year's draft class, all those guys that went back for the extra year, they're now going to be part of 2021 or 2022. And yeah. so now you've got a class next year that is going to be extra deep, and that's going to also impact. 2023, 2024, because the guys that played this year as true freshmen, they're coming in with a blank slate here for 2021. And so uh, this is going to be a long lasting impact. We'll see what, you know, how that's felt when we get to next year. It's impossible to know that right now, but uh, I think that's going to be really, really fascinating. It's a really interesting case study for all 32 teams to look at their own process and how they view it. One more question, because I know you nerd out to this team building stuff. I do. Just like I do. Uh, Jordan Rodriguez had an awesome piece on The yeah. Athletic last week about how the Rams have basically altered their draft process moving forward based on what has happened the last two years. And correct me if I'm misremembering this, but basically they're not attending the Senior Bowl. They're doing very little at the NFL Combine in comparison, just in terms of numbers, because we've seen staffs of coaches and scouting departments fully invest and attend both of those events. What's your read on that? I mean, I know these 32 teams are all operating in different ways. They're like 32 individual businesses, but it kind of feels like Fran, we're moving away from, Oh, we've always done it this way, which football has a lot of that. And we're kind of changing our process a little bit as we move forward. Yeah. And Jordan mentioned in the piece that uh, not only did they have this past year sample size to be able to work off of, but when the Rams made that move from St. Louis out west to L.A., a bunch of their staff had to be able to work remotely in that year as well. So uh, they've got a little bit of a heads up, a little bit of a head start uh, compared to other teams with that. But I I find it fascinating because I I appreciate the fact that not all 30, all 32 teams are not going to have the same process. They're not all going to have the same ideal look at terms of how they view these players these prospects, how they're going to make the transition to the NFL. Everyone's going to view these opt-outs differently. Um, you know, and to me, like reading what uh, Les Need and what the Rams front office, how they view this, they're like, look, maybe seeing a guy live is overrated. We were able to get back what we're trading off of in terms of seeing a guy with our own eyeballs versus the efficiency with which we were able to work. I was talking with our friend Dane Brugler. We, we covered the Senior Bowl every single day with all the practice and everything like that, all the analysis every day from the Senior Bowl. He was down there. I was not for the first time in a long time. Right. And I watched every single snap every single day that I don't normally get to watch, but I was watching it from exactly where I'm sitting right now. So when I'm reading Les Need say this, I'm like, yeah, like I get it. I, I, I was able to take in a lot more from my basement than I would if I were standing in, in the bleachers down there in Mobile. So this, this is I just giving it. me flashbacks here a little bit, Fran, because, uh, you know, you, you learn things as you go to the Shrine game, as you go to the Senior Bowl. And what I learned is, yeah, you can try your best to see what's going on during those live practices. Yeah. But then what I would do is I would sit in the end zone bleachers about 17 rows back, just take my cell phone and film the one-on-ones of pass rushers and offensive linemen. So I could go back and review that in my hotel room that night to actually get a read on what it was. And then I would always somehow sneak into the Exos taping room. Hopefully they're not listening to this. Uh, the final night down in Mobile, Alabama, and then review the tape from the entire week of practice. And yep. that did more in that two or three hour session than the previous two or three days. So I, I, I totally understand what you're saying and i think with the rams it's also on some of the players that they've hit too yeah. like they, they hit on Corey littleton they hit on morgan fox as as undrafted free agents and this is absolutely a team 
that is not trying to necessarily like acquire as many early round picks as possible. Like they're the opposite. They're like, Hey, if we see a veteran out there that is being undervalued because that team is overvaluing draft picks or they're rebuilding, we're going to go and get them. And, and there's something going on. And and look, I absolutely firmly believe that the draft process, I'm not going to call it luck, but there, there are elements of luck to it. And maybe they're on a hot streak. Maybe they're on a hot streak of, hitting on these undrafted free agents like Corey Littleton and, and Morgan Fox, but it also might be good process. And it certainly seems like they're leaning into the good process end of that. Uh, you know, we, you and I know this, that there's a, a level of probability to this. And so anything yeah. that you can do, that's what all, when you're trying to fine tune your process, all you're trying to do is increase your chances of success. And so everything you can do, every little tweak that you can make is all geared towards you know, increasing our probability to be able to have a hit in the draft. So whether that guy's in round one, round four, or round seven, or an undrafted free agent, if we trust our process, we are more likely to have success than not. And so uh, that's why I find it because, look, five years from now, we may look back on this Rams thing and, man, man, wow, they were really trailblazers. Five years from yeah. now, we may look back and say, what were they thinking? They did that for two years, and it did not work. So, uh, you know, uh, to me, it's it's so fascinating. It's fun, and it goes back to what I said earlier. Uh, I love that all 32 teams are going to have different viewpoints on this entire thing. And we close out the show with my partner in crime, Hayden Winks. We can't get you out of here by doing no work on this podcast. I'm just kidding. You're doing all the work on Underblog right now. Like everyone out there, we just launched basically our written content and it's on Underblog. It's it's in my feed and Hayden's feed on Twitter. That's where all of our written content is going to be. Uh, it's great on mobile. Obviously, it's great on desktop. So go and check that out. Hayden already has his quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end rankings up there. And I'll be posting a whole bunch of prospect stuff and a mock draft later this week. I say that. Hopefully we get there. Uh, All right, Hayden. Now it's time. What is your one big call ahead of the 2021 NFL draft? Well, I want to talk about the Falcons real quick. And I think that they're – I'm leaning towards mocking them to Kyle Pitts over a quarterback – and the reason why is, one, there's a chance that I think that they like Trey Lance the most. And there's a chance that the 49ers draft him. Secondly, the way that they restructured Matt Ryan's contract suggests that he's going to be on the team for two more years. I don't think that Arthur Smith took this job to s- sit around and wait for a little mini tank. I feel like he's trying to win with Matt Ryan and Julio Jones. So I'm going to be mocking them Kyle Pitts. And then the other part is, I'm not sure if, if any team actually wants to move up for the Falcons. If they know that the Bengals are going to sit sit back, if they know that the Dolphins are going to sit back at five and six, what's the point? If, if I'm the Patriots, if I'm the Broncos, I'm waiting until the Lions are on the clock. So yeah. I'm not sure how many options the Falcons are going to be left with. So I'm leaning Kyle Pitts. And with that, Kyle Pitts in this offense as the number three target, sign me all the way up for that. Play actions, his athleticism, winning on the perimeter, winning from the slot, winning in the red zone. I mean, the Falcons have always had these red zone troubles. We know Kyle, what Kyle Pitts can do. So my bold call Kyle Pitts is going to be top five fantasy tight end in redraft this year, which is nuts. I'm, I haven't looked that up. I'm not sure how many times that's ever happened in the NFL, but I'm willing to bet on outliers when there are outliers. And Josh and I, we've, we've broken down his film, his measurables, everything. This dude is the definition of an outlier. So um, in order for that to happen, uh, Travis Kelsey, George Kittle, Darren Waller, they're comfortably ahead of Kyle Pitts. But Mark Andrews, TJ right. Hawkinson, those are the two guys – drafting ahead of Kyle Pitts right now. If Kyle Pitts goes to the Falcons, there's going to be a lot of points. I mean, there's just going to be a lot of points with that defense. You can just sign me up. Like I, I know that it just makes no sense by men. So from a historical perspective, this is a bold call. But 
he's already being drafted as the tight end six. You know, you mentioned it. Travis Kelsey on this is according to underdog ADP, seventh overall, George Kittle, 19th overall, Darren Waller, 22 overall, Mark Andrews, 58, and TJ Hawkins in 72. And that brings us to Kyle Pitts around 79 or 80 overall. So, like, if you want Kyle Pitts on your team, you have to make him a priority. Right. That can be difficult in that area, especially with Dallas Goddard potentially playing at the tight end position by himself, even though he's attached to Jalen Hurts, who might not be throwing as much as they previously did. Noah Fant, Logan Thomas, Robert Tunyon, so on and so forth. But like you mentioned, despite what we have always said about the narrative about these young tight ends, we keep going back to the point that Kyle Pitts is probably just different. And in an offense that is built to score points right now with an offensive coordinator who's had great success both running and throwing the football efficiently, uh, that is a spot that makes the most sense. And his over-under right now is a four and a half basically anywhere. I'm with you. I'm taking the under because I know at least one team out there that has Cal Pitts as the number one player on their board. Yeah, he's not going to fall too far. And if I'm looking around, let's say it's not the Falcons. If he goes to the Bengals at five, that is like just as good. I mean, a team that's very pass heavy, that is lacking depth at the receiver position, and their defense is just as bad as the Falcons, basically. So we know that they're going to be passing the ball all the time. Like during those stretches with Joe Burrow, I mean, they were passing the ball like 50 times per game. And that's what the Falcons have been doing. Obviously, things are going to be a little different with a new head coach. But either of those landing spots is fine. If it goes down to the Dolphins at six, that's just as good to me too. I mean, they, they're, I think that'd be the worst landing spot for year one um, out of the three, but if it's the Falcons or the Bengals, those teams just pass the ball so much. They have competent quarterback play and no defense. Like that is just the perfect situation for a rookie tight end to come in there. So um, I'm not sure how much blocking uh, 240 pound Kyle Pitts is going to be doing. Right. We all agree that he can do it. It's not his biggest strength, but he's definitely at least average at that. So in, in year one, he could just be, all right, he's going to be basically a like modified X receiver and he's just going to dominate in the, in the pass game. And like we've mentioned, the depth at the position for fantasy is not very good. So this isn't like a massive bar to clear top five is, uh, but outliers are outliers, Josh. Yeah. And I also like your point that, you know, a team moving up might not have to force it to number four overall because you mentioned the Bengals aren't taking a quarterback. The Dolphins aren't taking a quarterback at number six and the Dolphins aren't trading out again. Like there's a reason yeah. why they got up back to number six. So the Lions and Panthers are absolutely two spots where I could see trading out of those situations because both those teams, you know, need to continue to build the talent around what they already have in place. So I, I, I'm with you. It's not like it's probably going to have to force a quarterback one through four and the Falcons are sitting pretty. Again, there are absolutely going to be a number of teams that have Kyle Pitts as the number one player in this draft. And it makes sense that the Falcons could be one of them. So, all right, Hayden, thanks so much, all of you. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We'll be back later this week. We're actually going to try an episode on Thursday instead of Friday. And it's a good one. Go and check out Underblog. Go and tell one friend about this show, the Underdog Football Show. Up the Villa. Talk to you soon. See ya.